0: Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining.
1: Just transition strategies were first conceived of by... And for labor and environmental justice groups and communities, I think the concept comes from the wisdom of folks in low-income communities of color workers and those on the front lines of what we call the extractive economy, which is really built on a consumerist, individualist, colonial mindset that thinks of workers as those that can be exploited, that uses the environment to dig, burn, and dump and continue to produce That allows the 1% to continue to hoard wealth and power and uses the military and police to enforce this power structure.
0: Hi, everyone. Addressing climate change is not just about eliminating emissions and removing as much carbon from the atmosphere as possible. It's also, of course, about people, how their lives Livelihoods and communities are disrupted by climate impacts as well as by investments in climate solutions. And this is an issue of equity. Pollution and climate induced extreme weather are disproportionately felt by people of color and low income communities. And historically, large scale investments in new industries have often disproportionately benefited wealthy people with privileged access. This is where the environmental and climate justice movement comes in. It's a movement that's grown in numbers, strength, and sophistication in recent years. It's won hard-fought advocacy battles at all levels of government, but has also influenced how stakeholders from all sectors think, talk about, and pursue climate action. At the center of this movement is the organization Climate Justice Alliance, a coalition of nearly 100 grassroots organizations all working to create what's called a Just Transition. In this interview, I'm joined by Marion G, Co-Executive Director of the Climate Justice Alliance for a truly informative conversation on the state of the climate justice movement, on the principles of a just transition, the role and strategies of the Climate Justice Alliance, and much more. Listen to this one with an open mind. Give some thought to how equity issues show up in your work and enjoy. Here we go. Hello, Marion. Welcome to Invested in Climate. So great to have you here with us today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Where are you dialing in from?
1: I am calling in from Kulitz Territory, Portland, Oregon.
0: Beautiful. Hopefully you're getting some spring sunshine and so much to talk about today. And I'm really grateful for your time. Let's dive in. You are co-executive director of the organization Climate Justice Alliance an organization that is focused on helping usher in a just transition of moving from an extractive economy to one that is regenerative. And Just Idea is not just an idea or a couple of words put together. It's a deeply considered framework and practice. And I'd love to start just by helping listeners understand what's meant by just transition, the history of the just transition movement, and the role Climate Justice Alliance is playing to support it.
1: I will do my best to give the cliff notes version because it definitely does have a long, rich history, but just transition strategies were first conceived of by and for labor and environmental justice groups and communities. I think the concept comes from the wisdom of folks in low-income communities of color, workers, and those on the front lines of what we call the extractive economy, which is really built on a consumerist, individualist, colonial mindset that thinks of workers as those that can be exploited, that uses the environment to dig, burn and dump and continue to produce, that allows the 1% to continue to hoard wealth and power and uses the military and police to enforce this power structure. What Just Transition is really doing is trying to divest from that power to move towards solutions that shift economic control to communities that democratize wealth in the workplace, that build a worldview of caring and sacredness, of a shared purpose of ecological and social well-being, that support cooperative work, that understand that there is a limit to growth and that our resources need to regenerate, that is based in deep democracy and governance, that relocalizes production and consumption and retains and restores cultures and traditions. We're really excited at Climate Justice Alliance to be celebrating 10 years of working with our 89 member organizations throughout the United States, across Turtle Island, Guam and Puerto Rico to make just transition real on the ground. And they have such a long history and so many examples of what just transition looks like on the ground, from agroecological farming cooperatives in the Pacific Northwest to the first ever community-owned solar project in New York City. Our organizations, our member organizations are leading the way in showing us what scalable climate solutions look like that really support community.
0: Great. Well, there is so much there. And as we mentioned, a very deeply considered framework, one with much history and a lot to it and a lot of pathways for action that's being created through it. And before we dive into understanding some of the principles and the partnerships and the action that that you're engaged in, It'd be great just to get to know you a little bit and how you got involved in this work to begin with.
1: Sure. We talked a little bit about retaining and restoring cultures and traditions when I mentioned what a just transition can look like towards a more regenerative economy. And I think that's a good place to start where I grew up in Southern California and I'm the granddaughter of some amazing people that grew up along rice paddies in Southern California. China and worked on farms in New Jersey. And through spending a lot of time with my grandparents, as well as my father, who loved to fish, I really enjoyed the outdoors. And I also had an amazing aunt that is now a federal judge, but was previously a labor lawyer. And I think through that family and through that mixed upbringing across different cultures and traditions, I really saw the importance of many elements of what a regenerative economy could look like. And I found my way to Climate Justice Alliance, though, by working with some more traditional environmental nonprofits, where I saw that those solutions just weren't working, and is what really drew me to Climate Justice Alliance in the end, and to all the amazing member organizations that we work with every day.
0: Fantastic. So, one of the core principles of the Just Transition is equitably redistributing resources and power. Tell us more about this principle and what it really looks like in practice.
1: Sure. Just Transition is the idea that we can move from our extractive economies, the way that they're set up now, where the 1% continue to accumulate more wealth, as we saw during the pandemic, the wealthiest folks continue to get wealthy, even as people were dying from COVID, suffering from various businesses being shut down. Not only are they continuing to accumulate that wealth, they're doing so at the expense of people and the planet and systemic racism that is embedded in our governance and economic systems. I think what that looks like in practice or like moving away from that extractive economy is creating new vehicles to distribute resources and distribute power more equitably and sustainably. An example of that might be our member organizations that are starting local loan funds like Kemper Institute in Indianapolis, indigenous environmental network is starting their own loan fund. We have our own loan fund at CJA called the our power loan fund where we're really looking to support projects that are Going to continue to put wealth back into the community and that meet certain values that I named before, like democratizing wealth, ensuring ecological restoration, driving racial justice and social equity. And once those projects are successful or start to be successful, I think a good example might be a local regenerative sustainable building project that we funded in Maryland. Once they take that loan and they're able to become what Our definition of profitable is a little bit different, not like limitless growth, but the kind of a more long-term sustainability, they're able to pay that loan back in, and then we'll be able to fund a new project. So that's one kind of example, but there are many different examples of what a just transition can look like and the ways in which people can do that. There are indigenous organizations that are taking land back, there are reparation funds, there are incubators so that's just a few examples of what just transition looks like in terms of redistributing resources and power and the power part is that our communities those that have been historically oppressed and marginalized they're in charge of these projects and they're directly benefiting
0: great one of the terms that i see that's part of the just transition framework is a regenerative economy. And regenerative and regeneration are terms that are used a lot these days, often in, say, an agricultural context. But the idea of a regenerative economy seems to be a bigger picture idea. What does a regenerative economy look like?
1: Yeah, I think this is related to some of the meta strategies that we will talk about later. But I think a, one of our core meta strategies is changing the story. And I think that we have been telling ourselves a story of limitless growth for a long time. And I think we are part of what regenerative or regeneration is changing that story that we need to look towards natural and ecological models for existence and being and what is having enough look like and how do we reconnect and return to right relationship with the earth and what it actually can produce because it doesn't have limitless production. I think there is abundance, but when you look at what the land is producing and where that like food is going in this example, there are so many people who are going without and then so much food that is being wasted at the same time. So I think regeneration is looking beyond limitless growth and then realizing that we actually have what we need. The people that need it just aren't able to access that. And what are the underlying causes for that? Like I mentioned before, the enclosure of wealth and power, systemic racism, the militarization of our police, exploitation of workers. I mean, we haven't seen a raise in just the minimum wage in, what is it, more than 20 years? So again, a regenerative economy is trying to change those stories or change those narratives and understand that we do have enough and we just need to be in a different kind of relationship with each other and with the Earth.
0: Thanks, Marion. You mentioned the six meta strategies, and I'm excited to get into those. But first, let's just set some context and better understand how your organization does the work that it's doing. And I understand that probably a lot of the work is in partnership with local grassroots organizations. Is that right? And how many organizations are there? And how does the Climate Justice Alliance typically work with them?
1: I'd say it's deeper than a partnership in a way because they're integrated into the governance of our organization. So we do have 89 member organizations. They are frontline community organizations. They are alliances of multiple member groups. They are movement support organizations or groups that help build the capacity of grassroots organizations. And they are based all over Turtle Island, what we call the United States from Guam to Puerto Rico, Alaska to Texas. And when they become members of CJA, they apply and they say they adhere to and incorporate our Just Transition Framework, our principles of organizing, including the principles. And when they become members, they have a really important role to play in the alliance, including determining our strategic vision. So they actually, in 2016, they approved a strategic plan that we're still using. They elect our board. They staff our working groups and campaigns. They are spokespeople for the organization. So they play a lot of different roles. And I think that it's really important to name that they actually are part of the governance of our organization.
0: So that's great to understand the connection and really the interwoven nature of the organizations with Climate Justice Alliance. As you probably know, there's tens of thousands of environmental organizations in the United States, and there's often competition between them. And so I'm curious about your thoughts on how is the alliance creating more collaboration and why are small community-based organizations so important?
1: I think that goes back to the idea of a regenerative economy and creating an abundance mindset. I think the real challenge for the tens of thousands of grassroots organizations isn't that they're competing with each other. It's that Most of the philanthropic funding, and now even potentially some of this Inflation Reduction Act funding, is going to larger nonprofits like Sierra Club, the Big Greens. And we've tried to be in partnership and continue to be in conversation with them. But often it's not so much a matter of community based organizations competing with each other. They only get about 1% of the philanthropic funding that goes to environmental and climate work. Most of that goes to large organizations already. And so I think one of our main strategies is trying to unveil that and also maintain the importance of grassroots organizing and community building and power building. And this is essential to any work, whether that's at the federal or the local level, we need to be investing in these organizations. And we call on those bigger greens to partner with Climate Justice Alliance and others to make sure that More funding is going to organizations that are feeling the impacts of climate directly and also working really hard to make solutions work in their community. I think the challenge for these larger national organizations is sometimes they think of the crisis as like a carbon budget. And if we just have some projects here, some solar installations here, and then we put some carbon capture on here, then we balance that carbon budget. And what I think these tens of thousand groups are showing is there's actually a lot of community based solutions that would be more resilient in the face of climate than some of these big techno fixes.
0: Marion, let's turn to the six meta strategies that inform your approach. They're well articulated, I'm sure provide a lot of clarity and guidance, especially for so many different organizations trying to work together. Will you tell us about these strategies?
1: Sure. They're very much interconnected, and it is challenging to do them all at the same time, but they are fight the bad build the new, build the bigger we, change the story, move the money, and change the rules. I think Fight the Bad has traditionally been our largest and most urgent piece of work and probably the one that most people would recognize happening in their community in terms of environmental justice organizations, I think, have been incredibly successful at stopping the very real everyday harms that our communities are faced with, like shutting down coal fire plants, for example. At the same time, we're constantly seeing new climate disasters or larger climate disasters like more wildfires, larger hurricanes, or even human-caused environmental disasters like the Norfolk Southern train, train derailments and other toxic spills. And so it's really important that we continue to fight those things. But as I mentioned, those other strategies are also important to ensure that we actually transition away from a, an economy based on fossil fuels. So those are some examples of fighting the bad. I think another s- incredible example is our member in Newark, New Jersey, Ironbound Community Corporation which after many, many years of organizing in a neighborhood that is bound on all four sides by an airport, highways, rail lines, and the Passaic River, which is one of the country's most polluted waterways, they were successful with many allies and partners in winning a historic environmental justice law that requires a review of cumulative impacts to ensure that already overburdened neighborhoods can no longer just be sacrificed or dumped on. And this was a really important win. And then just across the river, I think is an, an incredible example of what it looks like to build new. As I mentioned, I think earlier, there is a project in Brooklyn led by our member Uprose. They organized the first New York City community-owned solar farm right in their neighborhood that's going to provide lower energy costs for residents and also clean energy. I think that's a really exciting example of community controlling energy in their neighborhood while also involving the community. In terms of building the bigger we, I think that is really our strategy of working with many different coalitions and partners and alliances from the local, state, national and global levels to ensure that we're really growing the movement and putting forth or ensuring that frontline communities and those most impacted that their solutions are on the forefront of the policy that is being made of governance at all levels. In terms of changing the rules, our members have been critical in ensuring that the Biden administration includes Environmental justice, not only principles, but direct investment. So, I don't know if you all have heard of Justice 40, but our members sit on the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council and have been critical in ensuring that the administration is not just saying that they care about environmental justice, but actually requiring different agencies to ensure or demonstrate that 40% either directly or benefits environmental justice communities. I think that the challenge, and hopefully we'll have space to talk about this later, is in the implementation of things like the Inflation Reduction Act and infrastructure bills that were passed recently. There's a lot of money that could potentially flow to environmental justice communities, but we have some concerns about the mechanisms to ensure that they actually do go directly to community-based organizations. So we have some questions about that. And then the Last strategy, move the money is really in service of all of the other strategies, making sure that that capital, that 1% that has been enclosed for so long, and that has been accrued by corporations and individual people because of the exploitation, because of the enslavement of our people, that this money needs to go back into community hands. So through things like the loan fund, through local projects we're organizing to make sure that philanthropy is starting to align not only their grant making practices, but their investment practices as well. Because a lot of times these foundations have very large endowments and only about 5% of that is actually given out in grants. The rest is invested often in the stock market, which continues to circulate in the extractive economy and who knows what other false solutions or human rights violations or other corporations that that's being invested in. And I know that a lot of foundations have been thinking about and exploring how they can change those practices. And I would invite them to talk to climate justice Alliance to, and a lot of our partners and members who have been coming up with different ways of investing so that we can really take that money and jumpstart the regenerative economy.
0: Wow, there is so much there. Six meta strategies, and they really tell a full story. Fight the bad, build the new, change the rules, move the money, build the bigger we, and change the story. Uh, Warning, I'm going to ask you to pick your favorite. (laughs) But before we do that, I'm going to zoom into two that stand out to me as being so big picture, I'm really curious about the progress on them. And I'm going to focus in on move the money, and change the story, things that really influence the rest of the system in so many ways. And so I'm curious, how is it going? Are you able to measure progress? And are you hitting on the goals and the milestones that you're hoping for? And what should we expect to see in the future?
1: Well, you did choose my favorite one. So I guess we can <laughs> we can talk <laughs> about move the money, which is definitely like dear to my heart. And since before coming to Climate Justice Alliance, I did do a lot of development and funder organizing. I'm really excited to say that, at least in terms of CJA's strategic goal, which was to move $40 million in new climate funding to the grassroots, by our calculations, the organizing efforts of our staff, our members, and our partners has resulted in over $106 million of new funding going to the grassroots. So that is incredible. And if you look at the amount of money that could be moving, federal money, for example, that could be moving to climate or climate-related investments, that's $3.7 trillion. Or if you look at the recent commitments by billionaires like Jeff Bezos, $10 billion in the Bezos Earth Fund. Again, I just named, we were able to move $106 million in the past five to seven years. There's an enormous Enormous amount of money that is supposed to be going towards climate action And I think that the real challenge here is making sure that it's actually being direct not just directly invested in but that their actual Community control and governance to make sure that those that are have been most harmed by the fossil fuel Economy are actually benefiting from the development of the regenerative economy
0: Well, you've described what, from my vantage point, is really unprecedented level of interest and investment in climate action. This is something that groups like yours have fought for for a long time. Of course, it still comes with risks of being misguided or exacerbating problems, either unintentionally or even quite knowingly. And so I'm curious, how are you feeling about the influx of interest and support for climate action in recent years? And are there caution signs that you would like to raise in this moment of momentum?
1: I think you're totally right. The interest is the natural outcome of the organizing and the work that our members, our partners, those in the field have been pushing for decades. I think the challenge is a couplefold to direct that interest into solutions that actually address root causes. I think a lot of the kinds of solutions that are being touted by the Biden administration that the solutions they're hoping will have the deepest cuts are based on untested, unproven technologies, geoengineering or other techno fixes like carbon capture that basically allow fossil fuel infrastructure to be either maintained or expanded over the next 50 to 100 years. I think one, our members have done a really great job in providing some simple tools that everyday people as well as governments, as well as officials, staff, can use to understand whether something is a real solution or is maybe a corporate sponsored techno fix that will allow them to continue to do business as usual, including pollute in our members' communities. And that's our something, a tool that we call our people's solutions lens. And it asks five questions. Who is telling the story? So I think it's really important, like, if chevron is telling us that hydrogen is the solution i think we can question that like they got us into this problem and now they're telling us that they're going to provide the solution i have a question around that the second question is who makes the decisions if the decisions about who is going to be impacted by new technologies or by these different shifts that are supposed to be towards a healthier or more regenerative economy are not being made by people who are potentially impacted or who have been impacted in the past. That seems something to note. Thirdly, who benefits and how, again, with some of these quote unquote solutions that we're seeing being touted like hydrogen, it looks like through our analysis that it's mainly fossil fuel companies or other corporations that are going to benefit from that shift, not community. What else will impact? A lot of times, I think, when we hear even things like the IPCC report addressing the climate crisis, again, becomes like this sort of carbon budget, like people become numbers. Oh, we just have to cut this here and we'll cut that there. And I think that what else will be impacted? People, community, health, the environment. This has to be part of the conversation. It can't be simplified down just to numbers on a spreadsheet. And then lastly, how will this build or shift power for into marginalized communities? I think that in order to truly ensure that just transition to a regenerative economy, we really need to be shifting power away from these corporate interests or from systems that continue to make marginalized communities into sacrifice zones. Like that is not going to work anymore, and we have to shift that. So I think. There are tools that we have that could help us understand whether something that is being proposed is a real solution or not. I think that there is a lot of excitement and a lot of momentum with that $3.7 trillion that I mentioned, with the infrastructure bill, with the Inflation Reduction acts, among other bills. However, at the same time, we're also seeing the Biden administration approve the Willow Project and sell off rights to drilling off the Gulf of Mexico. So he's calling himself the climate president, but we're still expanding fossil fuel infrastructure in the United States. And that is really disappointing to see the commitments that the administration has started to make towards environmental justice communities. But at the same time, these aren't single projects. They have impacts to our members in Texas, for example, In Cancer Alley, among other places, these aren't isolated projects. They're part of this large system, fossil fuel infrastructure. And so I think that we have to be careful when we're monitoring the implementation of these different monies that are moving, because a lot of them could continue to go to other what we call false solutions like hydrogen, carbon capture. And we want to make sure that that money is actually going to organizations like our members who have lots of projects. They want to be building solar cooperatives, or they've already started them, or food cooperatives, or spaces for civic participation. There are a long list of projects that we've been building. And the reality is that our members, our communities have been chronically and historically underinvested, as I mentioned before. So even as this money is moving, and even as the government and agencies have been working really hard to, to b- provide justice 40 guidance to say that community based organizations have to be the lead applicant philanthropy has not invested in these community based organizations over the past 10 years so that they have the grant writing team to apply for that that they have the 501c3 status a lot of them are fiscally sponsored and they're already in the midst of other fights so i think that This is a critical moment for philanthropy to really examine their values and the vision with their practices, including their investment
0: practices. There is so much there that I'd love to dive into. I'm going to back us up just to unpack the term techno-fix and really understand what you mean by it. Is it simply that there's risk technology brings if it's overly glorified and comes without enough consideration of how it impacts communities? Or do you feel that new tech really shouldn't be a priority for us at the moment?
1: I think it goes back to those questions that I posed earlier. Let's take, when I said carbon capture, who is investing in those technologies? Who is asking for those technologies? And are those technologies actually ensuring that we move off of oil and natural gas? There are cases that show that they don't work, that CCS, They have tested actually this new technology and they have found that they spent billions of dollars and what they weren't seeing the outcomes that they wanted. So I think that techno fixes are, I think that the questions and our people solutions lens are still a powerful tool for us to really dig into the types of projects that are being proposed, things like carbon capture on heavy industry. From what we understand, there haven't been much studies on what would happen if you put this amount of carbon into the ground. Will this affect our groundwater? A lot of the communities, our members are in Jackson, Mississippi, in Flint, Michigan. They can't even drink the water right now. And we're proposing this new techno fix to take an industry that's already polluting, take who knows if it's actually taking out the other polluting particles or at least taking out the carbon, which is not the only thing that these industries emit, and then put storing them in the ground, this is not a long-term fix of the climate crisis. And the amount of money that is being put into it is clear that that it is more important to continue business as usual than actually find solutions or make shifts in our economy to actually care for people on the planet.
0: Thanks, Marion. Let's get specific and talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. And you mentioned before that there's opportunity for it to really benefit communities, but also a lot of risk that it is implemented the wrong way and that funding does not actually flow to the communities that need it and that are historically marginalized when new technology or new investments are made. So I'm curious, what's exciting to you about the IRA and what's concerning or frustrating to you about how it's being delivered?
1: I think it's exciting the opportunity to see all types of projects, whether they're mediating pollution, buying land, developing regenerative projects. I'll name a few projects that I'm personally excited about that our members are a part of that could potentially be funded by some of this money. Detroit Black Food Security Network is starting a groundbreaking cooperative grocery store called the Detroit Food Commons. It's meant it's a $24 million project that will house incubator kitchens, meeting spaces, offices, outdoor vendor booths, and a full-service grocery store that is cooperatively owned by member owners, located in a predominantly African-American low and moderate income community. So I think. This kind of reflects so many of the different pieces that we want to see in the regenerative economy, including providing local food, providing community space, incubating new businesses. They have been really successful in raising the funds, and but they're not quite there yet. And so I think the IRA has the potential to really support thousands and thousands of localized solutions like the Detroit Food Commons. What I am concerned about is that this amount, massive amount of money that is moving within this political context, right? Like if you look at the legislation, my understanding that some of this money has to be spent or at least allocated in the next two years, that's a lot of money to move very quickly and to set up the kind of accountability to make sure that it's projects like the Detroit Food Commons or Uproses, Sunset park solar project that I mentioned are the ones that are getting it instead of large solar installations. That again, they tick the numbers, but are they community governed? Are they community accountable? Are they integrated into the community in a way that's not harming the ecosystem or people? I think the speed at which this is moving and The ability of the organizations to be able to engage in it, it could be really challenging for those groups that are on the ground, that have relationship and community to access the money.
0: Marriott, you have your finger on the pulse of so many climate justice efforts, and you're probably aware of hundreds of activities at any given moment, and you're tracking all sorts of policy efforts and new programs being developed. What's most exciting and energizing to you right now?
1: I mentioned a few of those projects already, and I'll mention a few more. I think just seeing the different intersectional approaches that our members are taking to address really complicated problems, right? Like, for example, Community to Community is one of our member organizations, and they work with farm workers in Washington state. After nearly a decade, they were actually able to form a labor union. And they're working on creating a functioning solidarity economy center so that they can support worker-owned cooperatives. They're also working with a local land trust so that they can actually own the land that's acquired. Because even for some of our organizations that are able to like make these wins, they don't have enough capital. They don't own the land. Let's say they start a farm, then on city land, and then the city decides they want to do something else with it. They don't have any control over this. So I think I'm really excited about our members really understanding the importance of community control and community control of the land of the, and stewardship of their resources. And I think you're seeing that in projects like Community Communities or another really great project is Numalo Refillery, which is one of the projects of Micronesia Climate Change Alliance, our member in Guam. It's their first zero waste store in Guam, in a place where plastic pollution or single use plastic waste is a huge issue. And their goal is to make low waste living really accessible and convenient. So that's just also another example of like the creativity of our members to address these issues and really ensure that the either the businesses or the projects are really continuing to reinvest the community wealth back into the community.
0: Marion, especially with so much investment happening in the next few years, many would argue that these are critical years and that they're really shaping what's the new structures and economy that we'll live in for the years to come. And so I'm curious, what do you think are the most important things that must happen in the next few years in order to achieve a just transition?
1: I think that The most important things that need to happen are the continued investment in local living regenerative economies through direct investment in grassroots base building, power building organizations, the kinds of projects that I just named before. I think that it is not going to be enough and it's not going to be resilient to invest in big mega projects, big solar installations, big wind installations. That's really not changing the economy. That's not ensuring that communities are prospering. And so I think the most important things that need to happen are that continued investment and support in local grassroots space building organizations that are really manifesting what the regenerative economy looks like right now. They have the solutions. They're making them happen. They need the support and the investment from philanthropy, from government, from their own communities. And I think that's both what I'm excited about and what That are the most important things that need to happen in order for us to achieve a just
0: transition. Let's leave off on something really tangible. For listeners that have been inspired by your work and your vision, how can they help?
1: Oh, so many ways. I hope that they will go to our website, climatejusticealliance.org, and sign up for our newsletter, learn more about the Just Transition Framework, the principles of environmental justice, And all the incredible work that our members are moving and the ways that they can support their work, either by volunteering, donating, showing up at an action. I hope that they'll also listen to CJA's own podcast, Stories from Home, where you can hear directly from inspiring frontline leaders who are building the new and creating solutions, regenerative solutions. And I hope they'll follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CJA Our Power as well as donate. Donate to our members. You can find all of their donate buttons on our homepage, as well as donate directly to CJA.
0: Fantastic. We will include links to all of those resources in the show notes. Marianne, thank you so much for your time today and for the work that you're doing.
1: Thank you so much for having us and for providing a platform to share these incredible stories and projects and wins and lessons
0: and so much more. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.